still conflicting stories of what happened in Gaza. The international community and certainly the United States is calling for uh, uh, Israel to launch a, a more thorough investigation to try to figure out exactly what happened. Plus, election security in the United States. This election cycle, the U.S. will face more adversaries moving at a faster pace and enabled by new technology. And later, an update from Kyiv. Bird flu is now everywhere. And a look at water. Today is Friday, March 1st, and this is VOA's Flashpoint Global Crises. Good evening, I'm Steve Karish in Washington. Pressure mounted on Israel on Friday over the deaths of Palestinians waiting for aid, with several countries backing a UN call for an inquiry. As we heard on Thursday's show, authorities in Gaza said more than 100 Palestinians were shot dead by Israeli forces as they waited for an aid convoy. Israel disputes that, saying the Palestinians were mostly trampled in a stampede. I'm joined by VOA's Linda Gradstein in Jerusalem in an effort to sort it all out. What we know are the two competing versions. Israel has actually released video that shows thousands of Palestinians storming the aid trucks. Uh, And it does look like there was kind of a stampede and that people were getting crushed. At the same time, Israel says that its forces did open fire when they felt that some of the people there were threatening Israeli soldiers. uh, And uh, they said they, they opened fire at their legs. Now, at the same time, Israel says that it was responsible for no more than 10 of the deaths. Hamas, of course, says that Israel was responsible for all of the deaths. Hamas says more than 104 people were killed in this uh, stampede or in this incident. And the international community and certainly the United States is calling for uh, uh, Israel to launch a, a more thorough investigation to try to figure out exactly what happened. Now, it seems like some of this would be easy to figure out if the people were killed by bullets or if they were trampled. It seems like um, that would be self-evident. Has there been any evidence coming from the hospitals? Well, the hospitals are barely functioning, and that's part of the issue here. Uh, This happened uh, in northern Gaza, and uh, so it's not clear exactly where the casualties were taken and if the hospitals managed to do any kind of Uh, you know, saving people. But uh, the humanitarian situation in Gaza is getting worse and worse. The other issue is that, in other words, the only, um, you know, the only voices that we're really hearing are both the Israeli government and Hamas. Um, As far as I know, we haven't heard anything from, uh, you know, people who survived the incident who can say exactly what happened. From the best that I've been able to put together is it seems to be some combination of all of these. Um, Not only either people getting crushed in a a stampede, some killed by Israeli fire, and as well, the drivers of the aid trucks panicking and like trying to reverse and trying to get out of that situation that some of the people may have been run over as well. What's the reaction been inside Israel? 
Look, Israel right now is very concerned about another ceasefire and is looking at it mostly, is this going to impact the negotiations that are going on between uh, Hamas and the United States and in Israel indirectly and Qatar? Um, there had been progress towards at least the first stage of a hostage deal in which 40 hostages would be released in exchange for Palestinian prisoners and a six-week ceasefire. Uh, Hamas said those negotiations would continue uh, but uh, kind of warned that if, you know, these kinds of incidents make it harder for there to be negotiations. So, you know, the, the, the sense in Israel is more uh, that they do not believe that Israel was responsible for most of the deaths, and they're just concerned about will this impact the hostages. VOA's Linda Gradstein is in Jerusalem. Linda, thanks for your reporting on this. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Steve. In the United States, security officials are bracing for an onslaught of fast-paced influence operations from a wide range of adversaries, all aimed at impacting the country's upcoming presidential election. VOA national security correspondent Jeff Selden has the latest. It's not just Russia. U.S. security officials worry the list of adversaries looking to sway November's election is growing. This election cycle, the U.S will face more adversaries moving at a faster pace and enabled by new technology. FBI Director Christopher Wray on Thursday told a room full of security experts a main culprit is artificial intelligence, or AI. Lowering the barrier to entry, making it easier for both more and less sophisticated foreign adversaries to engage in malign influence, while making foreign influence efforts efforts by players both old and new, more realistic and more difficult to detect. Ray's warning is the third so far this week, echoing calls from the White House and a top U.S. lawmaker that Russia, China, Iran, and others are targeting influence operations at U.S. voters hoping to sway how they cast their ballots. Some private security firms also say they're seeing a new level of danger. Whether it's robocalls, whether it's fake videos... I think all those things really, even back to 2022, weren't as prevalent, right? You weren't going to get any high-quality type of deepfake video. Trellick CEO, Brian Palma. I think you're going to see more and more of that as we get closer to the election. Not everyone's convinced. Some lawmakers and conservative commentators have dismissed the warnings as propaganda designed to give President Joe Biden a Democrat a better shot of beating former president and leading Republican candidate Donald Trump come November. Jeff Selden, VOA News, Washington. It's election time in Iran as well. It's the first voting since the crackdown of mass protests in 2022. Some Iranians are expected to participate in the polling, while others are expected to heed the calls of activists to boycott the vote because they say government critics have been effectively banned from the ballot. VOA's Heather Murdoch reports from Istanbul. On Friday, Iran holds its first parliamentary elections since mass protests led by women and young adults were crushed in a nationwide crackdown in 2022. More than 22,000 people were detained and 500 were killed. In the run-up to the vote, Iranian leaders urged the public to participate as dissidents called for a boycott after the mass disqualification of candidates who were not members of conservative, pro-government parties. Statisticians predict a historically low turnout at the ballot. 
Analysts say many people will not vote because they view their choice not to participate as a way to challenge the government's legitimacy. This is Nesan Rafati, the International Crisis Group's senior analyst for Iran. Critics of the, uh, the system say that, look, you know, what's the point of even uh, engaging in this um, in this process that is not going to result in any meaningful changes or, or allow for, for much diversity of, of uh, views? And because the system is so um, uh, adamant on participation rates as a, as a metric for its legitimacy, uh, a boycott would basically take away um, that, uh, that claim. These elections will decide members of Iran's 290-seat parliament and its 88-seat assembly of experts, the governmental body expected to choose the country's next supreme leader as current Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei approaches his 85th birthday. Because reformist candidates have been virtually eliminated from the ballot, he says, Iran's next Supreme Leader is expected to maintain the government's conservative or hardline stance. But for many Iranians, the demands of protesters during the unrest in 2022 that was sparked by the death of Masa Amini in police custody remain unanswered. Besides issues of personal freedom and sustenance, Iran's economic crisis has led to widespread discontent. Benedict Vigers is a consultant for Gallup World Poll and the lead author of Thursday's report, Iran Votes, Lukewarm on Leadership, Cool on Economy. In 2023, just 15% of Iranians said that it was a good time to find a job in their area, while 80% said it wasn't a good time to find a job. And a further 61% say when asked um, how they're finding life on their present household income, 61% of uh, Iranians say that they are currently finding it difficult or very difficult to get by uh, on their present incomes. He says that in recent years, Iran has seen roughly 40% inflation, and more and more young people say they wish to travel abroad for their futures. Other analysts say while the upcoming elections are not expected to usher in any immediate sweeping changes, it can be expected that protest movements will arise again. Heather Murdoch, VOA News, Istanbul. An investigation by a Ukrainian journalist revealed that at least three Polish companies are importing Russian agricultural products into Poland. And the Russian Commissioner for Human Rights says Russia is ready to hand over the bodies of some Ukrainian prisoners of war. VOA correspondent Anna Chernakova has the details from Kyiv. Ukrainian journalist Mikhailo Tkach, who was detained by Polish law enforcement officers earlier this week near the Polish-Belarusian border, published an investigation about at least three Polish companies that are importing Russian agriculture products to Poland. According to his investigation, at first, agricultural products go to special centers in Belarus, where they are reloaded into trucks with Polish registration and then transported to Poland. Apparently, the main goal is to hide the fact that Poland is buying from Russia, as this could be considered as sponsoring of Russian war in Ukraine. Reportedly, Russia receives hundreds of millions of dollars from Polish companies for its agricultural products. Even though Poland and other EU countries are allowed to trade with Russia and Belarus as there are no sanctions that specifically apply to agricultural products, 
The situation seems controversial as this is happening at the same time as Polish farmers are boycotting agricultural products from Ukraine, the country Russia invaded, saying it is harming their profit. After the release of the investigation, Polish Prime Minister Donald Tusk met with Polish farmers. He promised that Poland would work on an embargo on agricultural products from Russia and Belarus. In other news, Tatiana Muskalkova, Commissioner for Human Rights of the Russian Federation, said that Russia is ready to hand over to the Ukrainian side the bodies of prisoners of war who died during the crash of the Il-76 in the Belgorod region on January 24th. Ukrainian Parliament Commissioner for Human Rights Dmitro Lubinets stated that he has not yet received any official data from Russia regarding the possible deaths of Ukrainian prisoners of war during the crash of Il-76, but after the statement made by Moskalkova, he will once again contact the Russian side on this issue, as Ukraine has not received any proof that soldiers were on the plane shot down by Ukrainian forces. Meanwhile, explosions were heard in occupied Crimea by residents of Sevastopol, Evpatoria and Gvardiyski, north of Simferopol. According to Ukrainian military telegram channels, a Russian airbase is located in Gvardiyske, where Su-24M and Su-25SM jets are based. The monitoring group recording a fire south of the runway of the Simferopol airport. Anna Chernikova, VOA News, Kyiv. You're listening to Flashpoint Global Crises from the Voice of America. I'm Steve Karish in Washington. Water is one of the world's most essential things. It's right up there with air and food, but it's all too scarce in much of the world. We'll take a look in a few minutes. Now to Moscow, where members of the public were kept away as opposition leader Alexei Navalny was laid to rest. The AP's Karen Chamas reports. Hundreds of mourners lined up behind control barriers outside of the church, many holding red flowers. On live-streamed footage, the crowd applauded and chanted his name as his coffin was taken out of the vehicle as it arrived at the church. Many came from around Russia to say their goodbyes. Mourner Nadezhda Ivanova, who came from Kaliningrad for the event, told the AP, Alexei, for everyone who's here today, and for many who did not dare to come here, is a person who not only gave his life in the fight for something, but who gave his life in the fight for us. His supporters say several churches in Moscow refused used to hold the service before Navalny's team got permission from one in the capital's Marino district. I'm Karen Shamas. The bird flu is a dangerous infectious disease, and while it's rare in people, it can be devastating to animals. And now, it's everywhere. Spanish researchers have just discovered bird flu in Antarctica, so now it's on all seven continents. I'm joined by science writer Lisa Schneering for more. The virus first... Um showed up in South America in October of 22. And in just three months, it marched all the way down to the very southern tip of that continent to Chile. The first warning from the animal health groups about the risk to the um, Antarctica animals and it seemed like just weeks after they made that warning, um, the virus showed up in sea lions in the gateway area right off the coast of Argentina. And how dangerous is this to the animals that are there? 
So it's very contagious among the animals. Um, it can spread from seabirds that are migrating from like Argentina to the sub-Antarctic regions. And then um, it can hopscotch to the mainland, which was just reported recently. That's the most recent event. Um, it kind of uh, made its way to the Falklands areas and to the South Georgia islands. And, um, and now we're seeing just the steady procession of that. So, And now that bird flu is on all seven continents, what does this mean for people? What does it mean for our food supply? For the food supply, um, in villages where bird flu is detected in poultry, um, this is people's um, food source, their protein source. Um, the way that people make a living in rural areas is the village poultry. Um, and of course, in the United States, we've seen egg producers get hit. You know, it affects people's grocery prices, um, turkey as well, um, broiler chickens. So you can see it down to the granular level um, with people in developing countries. This is just so important. Is the bird flu transmissible to people? Do, do humans need to worry about this? Human cases are super rare. It's occurring in people that have um, heavy-duty contact with the virus, people that are cleaning up um, animal carcasses off the shore of South America, um, people that are handling poultry. So, um, so far, no huge warning signals of um, a mutation that would make it more easily jump to people. But there's enough um, uh, little warning signs to, to have the scientists pay very close attention to this. Lisa Schneering is an editor for SIDRAP News. That's a journal published by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. Ms. Schneering, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Steve. Water is, of course, essential for life. But in the small southern African country of Eswatini, 25% of rural communities lack clean drinking water, and another 40% of these communities do not have any access to it. Noku Kanyamusi has the story from Mapuani. Every day, Jabu Gametze makes a two-kilometer trek to Mkulubane River, the only water source near a home in Mapuane in the Lubombo region of Eswatini. Although the water is contaminated and her route is dangerous, with risks of theft and sexual assault, she says she has no other choice. Gametze says that as the seasons grow hotter and drier, the water the residents rely on is becoming scarcer. The well is starting to run dry, and the community's future hangs in the balance. According to the United Nations, the annual mean temperatures in Eswatini have increased by more than 3 degrees Celsius between 1961 and 2000. These shifts have led to the decreased stream flows in primary river basins and heightened instances of waterborne diseases. Elkolus Lolo says that in addition to worrying about getting good grades at school, he has to worry about getting water every day. He says he often falls asleep in class. 
Melvin Lamini, a member of Mapungwane's Community Development Committee, says Mapungwane's children are sick and the water is unclean. Residents have no choice but to drink it, even though they know it will make them ill. International aid agencies such as WaterAid and World Vision International are working to address the water crisis in Eswatini by funding the construction of water filtering systems and new wells as well as improvements to sanitation facilities. The Italian aid agency Cooperation for the Development of Emerging Countries, or COSPE, is collaborating with the people of Mapungwane in the construction of a new water filtration system set to be unveiled soon. They raise their own issues, identify the problems affecting them uh, as a result of climate change, and they also come out with some proposed solutions on how they can adapt, uh, how they can address those issues. In 2023, the Eswatini government allocated funds to improve water supply schemes, which will benefit over 41,000 people. Nogukanya Musi, VOA News, Mapungwane, Eswatini. And in India, water taps have been installed in millions of village homes in recent years as part of an ambitious nationwide program to provide a water connection to every household in the country's vast rural areas. Anjana Pasrisha looks at how the drive has helped residents in one village in northern India. Babli Devi was among millions in Indian villages who had to walk long distances from their homes to fill water from community taps and other sources for washing and cooking. Babli Devi, a resident of Kunsal village in Himachal Pradesh, state of North India, said she had to go very far in the morning, afternoon and evening, often making two or three trips each time. That decades-long trek ended for Devi a few months ago when a tap was installed in every home in their village under an ambitious $50 billion nationwide program to provide piped water to all rural households. Only one in six of India's 200 million households in villages had access to water in their homes until five years ago. That number has increased to about three in every four households as engineers have raced in recent years to lay a network of pipes. The task is not easy. Himachal Pradesh state, where Devi's village is located, for example, gets ample monsoon rains, but the water flows downstream in the hilly region, creating shortages in summer. Winters present other problems. This network of storage tanks with a treatment plant will supply about 10 villages. Providing clean water is critical in a country where waterborne diseases are rampant. Suresh Mahajan, chief engineer in the Water Resources Department, is overseeing the project in Dharamshala district where Kunsal is located. Having a tap in the house has transformed lives for these villagers. Devi's daily task of tending to household chores is lighter. She said fetching water used to really increase her work. Now she gets some rest. However, experts warn that as piped water becomes more widely available, authorities will have to ensure its judicious use in one of the world's most water-stressed countries, where shortages are worsening. 
और अक्षय कुमार एन अंडर ग्रेजुएट स्टूडेंट नोज द वैल्यू ऑफ सेविंग वॉटर इट गिव्स इम टू मोर आवर्स टू स्टडी ही सेड ही इज कॉशियस अबाउट नॉट वेस्टिंग वॉटर एंड इफ ही सीज समाप इज ओपन ही शट्स इट Building a culture of water conservation will be key in ensuring that these taps don't run dry. Anjana Pasricha, VOA News, New Delhi. And that's going to wrap up today's show. There's more VOA coverage 24 hours a day on our website, voanews.com, and across our social media platforms. On behalf of everyone here at VOA, thanks for listening. Until next week, I'm Steve Karish. Stay up to date with VOA podcasts. Each weekday, International Edition covers the world's biggest stories, while Flashpoint Iran and Flashpoint Ukraine examine their respective regions in depth every week.